Okay, let's jump right in. Um, my opening question for you is, what have been the worst days of your life? What have been the worst days of your life? Let me tell you about some of mine. So one time in middle school, um, I was eating lunch, and I didn't really like Indian food at the time, and I took this giant bite of food, and I started choking on it, which caused me to throw up all over the person next to me. <laughs> Worst days. Um, another, a few years later, um, for some reason, I decided for my musical audition, my freshman year of high school, that I would wear contacts for the very first time. So, um, and I totally ended up regretting that because while I'm standing and singing on stage, both contacts pop out at exactly the same time. And I'm just completely blind while I'm trying to sing. And I had to stop my audition because I was so distracted that I was like, I'm, I'm so sorry, can I start over? I, need, I can't see. So I went and got my glasses. Um, I did not end up getting the part that I auditioned for. Um, another story, one time in college, I was walking home at like 6.30 in the morning after staying up all night writing a paper. And across campus, I thought that I saw a building on fire. So I start running toward the fire to make sure that people were okay. Um, and as I reach the building that I thought was on fire, I start to dial 911, only to realize that it's not a fire at all. Um, it was the pool. And in the morning, when they start to heat up the pool for morning swim practice, all this steam starts rising off of the pool. Um, and I thought that it was a fire because there's this giant LED billboard like right behind the pool that says fight on in bright red. And it was lighting up the steam to make it look like a fire. And so I'm on the phone with the police. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and I just hang up. Really, really embarrassing. Um, later that day, I actually dropped a giant jar of kimchi at a friend's apartment, and it exploded all over my face, onto my clothes, all over the kitchen, and I looked up and it was on the ceiling, just bright red all over the ceiling. Really bad day. Those are some of the, the worst funny days that I've ever had, but I'm, and I'm sure that you've had days like that, but what about the actually bad days? Here are a few of mine. The day that I sat beside, uh, sat at the bedside of my little sister, who lay there with the whole of her left, the, the left side of her face stitched up and bandaged from surgery, and the days that followed that I spent by her side crying from remorse and guilt and shame because I was the one who had accidentally hit her in the face with a golf club. the day that I came home from vacation to find out that my dog, Kuma, had gone missing. Our neighbors had seen a coyote prowling around the house that week. The day in middle school that I got caught looking at pornography on my parents' computer. The day that one of my closest friends in college blocked me on all social media platforms and messaged me telling me that he never wanted to see my face or talk to me again. The day in my sophomore year of college when after, after battling through months of readings and assignments for a Japanese class that the program had specifically developed just for me, I shamefully walked into my professor's office and told her that it was too hard and that I needed to drop the class. And as I walked out of her office, 
I noticed that I had 15 missed calls from my sister, I was also at USC at the time, who had left an almost incomprehensible message saying in tears that our grandfather was in the hospital with just hours to live and that we had to go now to see him before he passed. I know you've had days like this, and I know that you've had worse days too. The days when you just cannot imagine that a good and sovereign God is reigning over this sin-cursed world. The days when everything is so wrong, with no hope of anything being made right. How do you deal with those days? How do you respond? Where is God on those days? What is he doing? Today we are going to continue our study of Job. And we're going to get dropped right into the middle of Job's worst day ever. Probably the worst day ever recorded in the scriptures after the crucifixion of Jesus. And we'll see two things. First, who God is amidst suffering. And second, how Job responds to suffering. May this challenge us and be an encouragement to us as we struggle through the sufferings of life to live faithfully to God. Let me read our passage and then I'll pray. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, and go all the way through 22. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
Verse 13, now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a message to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck them down, struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came up across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, and shaved his head, and fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand your word. Bring us alive to what you have here in Job 1. May it be a challenge and an encouragement to us in the midst of our, our suffering. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Enter upstage right Job from the land of Uds. We've all met him before and know him to be blameless and upright, a righteous man before God who feared God and turned away from evil. What a stunning character bio. Of all the characters introduced in all of the scriptures, this Job has the most stellar resume. The description of blamelessness and upright is used nowhere else in the Bible to describe any man. This is a high commendation. And yet, as the author continues to describe not only Job's flawlessness, flawless character, but also the majesty and abundance of his possessions and wealth in perfect sets of ten, something deep inside us squirms as we listen. The jump scare is coming. We know that something is bound to go wrong. The silence and the peace are about to end. A scene has been set, the actors are in place, and now the great drama begins. As we go through this passage today, there are two realities that we must see. First, God's sovereign authority over suffering. And second, Job's righteous response to suffering. As the curtain draws on this passage, we find ourselves in God's throne room on a new day. But this is not just any day. It is the day, it says in Hebrew, one set apart on which this group of heavenly beings called the sons of God were to come before Yahweh and present themselves to him. These sons of God are a group of divine authorities who are derivative from God, 
to whom God has delegated authority and responsibility to carry out his will. This is God's divine counsel. And we might be surprised to see that Satan is tagging along with this group. Now, the Hebrew here for Satan actually says the Satan, literally the accuser, the enemy. So it is a little bit uncertain whether or not this is the Satan that we know from Genesis 3 and all over the New Testament, or if it's a different heavenly being who has been assigned the role of the accuser. But either way, this figure is here to play devil's advocate. When God asks, from where have you come? He's not being sassy saying, well, why are you here? He's actually asserting his authority. He's saying, servant, give your report. And so Satan does. And by saying that he has come from going to and fro on the earth, from walking up and down on it, the Satan makes it clear that he has been given the task of going throughout the earth to know and evaluate the hearts of men, searching for those with genuine piety. We can infer because just after this, God says, well, what about Job? Have you noticed his godliness? This is the start of a day that will completely change Job's life. And this whole setup gives us a peek into the throne room, into God's presence as he carries out his sovereign will. And here we see God as he truly is, the sovereign authority over all things. The first thing that we see in this passage is who God is, perfectly sovereign. Now, there are three indicators here that reveal to us the perfectly sovereign authority of God and give us important insights into the realities of suffering in our lives as Christians under this sovereign God. First, notice God's authority even over the Satan. When the sons of God appear before him and the Satan comes as well, we should not picture this like Satan coming to crash some party that he's not invited to. It's not like that scene in Sleeping Beauty where Maleficent comes crashing in uninvited in a flash of black lightning to curse baby Aurora. No, the accuser shows up and falls in line. He doesn't speak unless spoken to. He keeps his head down, his eyes lowered. Even Satan reports to the sovereign God. We need to rid ourselves of this dualistic God versus Satan, good versus evil, Star Wars theology that often characterizes the way that we view the relationship between God and Satan. God and Satan are not two equal powers representing the forces of good and evil. No, God is not threatened or thwarted by Satan in any way. Yahweh, his reign is supreme. And Satan only has power to the extent that God himself allows. Even the enemy is bound by the sovereignty of God. Second, look at verse 8. Notice that it is God who brings up Job. It is God's intent to have this conversation. It is God's intent and his plan to trouble Job. It's his plan to prove Job's godliness, and by doing so, his own righteousness. 
It's God who starts the conversation, who gives permission to Satan to speak and gives his evaluate and give his evaluation of the people of the world. It is God who says, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. God is proud of Job. He is pleased by his faithfulness, his godliness, and his integrity. There is no one on earth who is faithful and pleasing to me like Job. He brings me honor, he brings me glory, and he's my friend, God says. But Satan sees Job's godliness differently. He's skeptical. He responds, does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? In reply to God's glowing commendation of Job, Satan says, well, duh, Job is blameless and upright. Duh, Job loves you and obeys you. You've always given him what he wants. You've always protected him. You've never let him face even a little suffering in life. Of course he's going to be righteous. And he goes on to say, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. Satan's conclusion about Job is that if you take away all the blessings of his life, Job will curse God. Satan's conclusion is that Job was only ever in it for the blessing. He's just a prosperity gospel preacher who says, I obey and fear God so that he gives me nice things. And once you strip those nice things away, his true self will show. Satan is questioning Job's motivation and his conception of God. And his point here is actually valid. It is unclear as to whether or as to where Job's righteousness comes from. We don't know if Job's righteousness is tied to God's blessings or if it's separate from God's blessings. We don't know who Job thinks God to be and how his knowledge of God affects his behavior. Does Job fear God for no reason? Surely we'd like to say yes. Surely we'd like to say that Job does and love and obey God for no reason, but simply because God is God and deserves love and obedience. But now the question has been asked, and God acknowledges the legitimacy of Satan's challenge. So verse 12 says, And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. When everything is stripped away from Job, will he bless God or will he curse him? Satan might have been, Satan's point might have been valid, but remember who started the conversation. It's the all-knowing, sovereign God who started it. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Though the accuser is unsure of the legitimacy of Job's faith, God is not. Remember that. He knows very well that Job's faith is rooted in God and not his gifts. And yet God still allows the adversary to ruin Job's life. God is up to something. When we consider God's sovereignty here, it's very easy to forget his other attributes, or what we should call his perfections. Let's not forget, though, verses like 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Let's not forget Deuteronomy 32.4. His work is perfect, for all his ways are just. 
a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Let's not forget Psalm 145:17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all of his deeds. Don't forget here that God cannot be divided in his infinite perfections. And that means that God is infinitely wise, infinitely good, and infinitely sovereign, infinitely powerful, and infinitely in all the other things that make up his essence. And if it is true, then, that God is perfectly wise and perfectly good, that means that God has a perfectly good reason for allowing Job to suffer. God, in his perfect wisdom, is being intentional in ordaining this situation. And there is meaning behind his ways. Suffering, therefore, for the Christian is never meaningless. God, in his perfection, has a plan. The third thing that points to God's sovereignty here is that when Satan goes out to take everything from Job, notice that Satan cannot go past what God allows. When God says, behold, all that he has is in your hand, only against him do not stretch out your hand, that means that Satan is not touching Job. He can do whatever he wants with Job's stuff, his possessions. But if God says Job's physical body is off limits, then Job is off limits to Satan. That is that. Satan is bound by the will of God. And praise God that Satan does not have the final say. He can only do what God allows him to do. This is God's sovereignty in suffering. All of these things show us that God is perfectly sovereign over Job's life and his suffering. Before we go to the next point, I want to remind us of a very important conclusion that we must make about the relationship between Job and his suffering. Job's suffering is not a consequence of his sin. In God's sovereignty here, Job's suffering is not a consequence of his own sin. Last week, Eric made it very clear that we have to redefine our categories when it comes to suffering. Of course, we are right to think that suffering can be caused by our own sin. The rest of the wisdom literature outside of Job shows how those who live, who sin live hard lives filled with suffering while those who live in righteousness are blessed. Proverbs especially sets out a very clear picture of the two ways that you can live. The first path, the path of wisdom, the one of righteous living, the one that leads to eternal life. And the second path, the path of foolishness, a path marked by sin and idolatry and giving into temptation, indulging in sinful desires and doing whatever you want to do without consideration of God or others. And that is the path that leads to suffering and death. The lesson to be learned from these two paths is to fear God and obey his commandments, to love God and to follow his ways, to walk the path of righteousness. Suffering that results from our active sin is supposed to be a wake-up call. The winds of pain when you put your hand too close to the fire, telling you to pull back before you get seriously hurt. The suffering that comes in your conscious in your conscience, in guilt, is God's gracious indicator to you that you need to flee from your sin and run to him in repentance and forgiveness and find forgiveness. 
This sort of char- thinking characterizes a lot of our assumptions about life under God's authority and his rule. And when it comes to sin, it is a helpful one. It helps us remember that sin has consequences. But the book of Job comes in and it nuances that picture of wisdom. It's not so simple as good guy lives a good life and bad guy lives a bad life. We need a new category of suffering. And that category is that suffering for Christians is not necessarily the result of active sin. Suffering for Christians is not necessarily the result of active sin. Maybe God allows hard things in our lives for a greater purpose than just retribution and discipline. I want you to remember throughout this whole book as we study it that behind and throughout the entirety of Job is an absolutely and meticulously sovereign God who intends not simply to assert his sovereign reign, but to show the perfect goodness of it. God intends to glorify himself. In the book of Job, in some deep way, somehow it is necessary for it to be publicly seen by the whole universe that God is worthy of the worship of man and that God's worth is in no way dependent on his gifts. God is out to prove that. In this way, God is doing something necessary and good by allowing the Satan to maliciously devastate Job's life and strip everything away from him. This truth is applicable to our suffering in our New Testament age. There is a high purpose of God's sovereign permission of suffering. That purpose is that God is proving himself to be utterly glorious, ultimately worthy, sovereignly powerful, and perfectly good, not because of what he gives, but simply because of who he is. Paul writes in 1 Peter 1, 6-9, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. In your, mission, in your suffering. God is on a mission to vindicate himself. He's proving to you and to the whole world that he is so infinitely valuable, so powerful, so sovereign, and so good, so worthy of praise and honor and glory and trust that he can generate faith in your heart to cling to him and survive even through the darkest, most painful trial. You can have confidence that if you are truly a Christian by his grace, then your suffering only comes upon you as God allows it. (coughs) Excuse me, gosh. (coughs) Sorry. And if God is going to truly carry out all of his promises to you in working all things together for your Christlikeness, which is your good, and in authoring and perfecting your faith, then you can trust that every suffering you face 
is meaningful. It has purpose. Next, we look at how Job responds to suffering. His response is mourning and worship. In our second point, we come to the turn of the story. Another day. And Satan comes to carry out his malice on Job. And in a quick succession of tragedy after tragedy, everything is taken away from him. Look at verses 13 through 22. It starts with his oxen and donkeys. A neighboring people comes and slaughters his livestock and servants. And before he even has a chance to breathe, another servant comes to report that the fire of God has fallen on the sheep and servants. And again, before he has a chance to respond, a third servant appears to say that the Chaldeans raided his camels and the servants tending to them. And before he was done speaking, the worst news comes. All of Job's children are dead. In moments, all of Job's wealth and everything precious to him has been stripped away. How will Job respond is the question. His response will speak to the truth of his heart. It will prove if he loved God for his gifts or if he loved God for God. It will prove if Satan was right or wrong. So what does he do? Verse 20 says, Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I come from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is the righteous response to suffering. Job knows that one day he's going to die, and he will take nothing with him. He knows that all of his life has been a gift from God, from his health to his family to the things that he had. And because it is all God's, he has the right to do what he likes with it. He can give and take as he pleases. We get the answer that we were waiting for. Job loves God because he is God, not because he is the giver of gifts. And his answer models to us how we, too, should respond to suffering. The righteous response to suffering has two parts, mourning and worship. Mourning and worship. Notice in verse 20 this combination of grief and trust, lament and faith. It says that he tore his robe and shaved his head as was common for those in mourning. And yet he also falls to the ground and worships God. Job does not just look at his circumstances and then look at God in the midst of them and take a deep breath and just say, everything's going to be okay. He doesn't, without batting an eye, just watch his whole world fall to pieces and then just go on with his life because of his faith in God. No, get that sort of emotionless, robotic, and unreasonable, empty sort of feigned Christian strength out of your head. Do not choose that option to, as a response to suffering. Rid yourself of any notion that because you are a Christian, you have to be strong. And you have to just say that in the midst of everything that hurts in life, I'm okay. 
Such a mindset is self-sufficiency. It's pride. To say that I have the strength to be okay, I can do it, I can muster up the courage and confidence, I can act the part, I can be strong. What a waste of God-ordained trial for you to dive deeper into self-sufficiency when you are practically crushed by pain that God himself has ordained so that you can cast yourself on him. Don't waste your suffering in self-sufficiency. Run to Christ. That's what we see in Job's response of mourning. The second part of Job's response is equally as important. He falls on the ground and worships. Job gets no reason why. He doesn't get to know why he suffers. But also notice that Job doesn't even ask He falls on his face and worships without question. Job's response here shows us that in every circumstance, every suffering that we face, we have a choice. We have a choice to curse God or to bless him, to reject him and accuse him or to accept and trust him. And the only reason why Job is able to make this sort of confession is because he has it in his head so clearly that before God is the giver of gifts, God is God. Before God does anything for mankind, he is transcendent and eternal, immutable, glorious, perfectly righteous, and wholly lovely in and of himself, apart from anything that he does to communicate his goodness to Job. And the conclusion of our passage in verse 22 says, Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. The Satan predicted that Job would curse God to his face. But Job does not. He worships. So far, Job has displayed for us a stellar example of the first step of faith in the midst of suffering. It's not blaming God. This will not always be Job's response, and it won't be his final posture. We will see as we continue to read this book that Job does call God to be accountable for his actions later. But what he models for us here is the truth that whether God gives you all the world or takes away everything you have, God deserves to be praised. And I know that's a hard thing to accept. God owes you nothing. The right response, the right first step is always to affirm God's wisdom and his perfections in all of his ways, even when you don't understand. It is to say alongside with Job in chapter 13, verse 15, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Job has no idea about the developments in the throne room or of Satan's involvement. He has no idea that God is using his suffering to directly vindicate himself. And yet even though, even without knowing any of that, Job still comes to two correct conclusions. First, suffering results from the sovereign hand of God. And two, even when it seems like sovereign God is in the wrong, he is not, that even when it seems that God is to blame, God is not. God is not evil, and therefore he cannot be blamed for it. 
Of course, don't take this truth out of the context of the rest of the Bible. Just because God is sovereign and all-wise doesn't mean that he's not loving, and it doesn't mean that he's not relational. The things that Keith and I preached during the summer about lament and crying out to God and suffering and being honest with him and struggling and confessing the hard things of your heart are still true. God still invites those things because he loves you. But let Job's response be an example to you as a balanced way of interacting with God, especially in the first step when you are responding to suffering. Lament, cry out, struggle, and worship. Let's be realistic. When the first wave of suffering in our life hits, we know that there's more to come. And it would be simplistic and unloving and unrealistic for me to tell you that you just always have to be strong and okay with everything that God sends your way. But this here is your first step. Confess to God, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job's response answers Satan's question. When Satan asks, does Job fear God for no reason? Job shows with his words and his actions that the answer is yes. Job fears and loves God for no other reason than because he is God. He deserves it. Job has no ulterior motive in trusting, believing, honoring, praising, and obeying God. Blessings were just the cherry on top, not the reason he obeyed God. But let me ask you a question. Do you have an ulterior motive in obeying God? Do you love God for no reason? Satan thought that Job only loved God because of the prosperity that God gave. But he was wrong. Job still loved God despite being stripped of everything in his life. Do you love and obey God because of what you get from him? If God were to strip everything away from you, would you still fall to the ground and worship him? If God takes away your family, your belongings, your home, your hobbies, the things you love doing, your friends, will you still love God? It goes the other way too. If God were to give you everything that you ever wanted in life too, would you still love him? Or would you love your gifts more? We must love God for no reason. We must learn from the example of Job before the Lord that teaches us this lesson by actually, or before the Lord teaches us this lesson by putting us through it. Love God for God and not for what he gives. Suffering in the book of Job reveals theology. And it will reveal yours too. You find out what you actually think about God when everything goes wrong. When trouble comes, do you turn away from God or do you turn toward God? Your response will reveal what you believe to be true about him. If you turn away, it shows that you didn't believe in the first place that God is good, loving, or sovereign. Realize for us, though, as Christians, even more than Job, as people who have received the full canon of Scripture, 
that we have a solid foundation to stand on that allows us to trust God and love him even when everything in life is stripped away. And that's because we have the cross. When God humbled himself by incarnating as a human child and becoming a servant to you, he was declaring to you that he is committed. In the 30 years he spent growing up, experiencing all the temptations, the hurts, and the struggles of first century Jewish life, all the same things that you and I face, he was showing in his patience his endurance for you. In his enduring of the mocking and jeering and accusations of the crowds as he took up his cross, in letting the soldiers batter and torture and bruise his, and tear his flesh, in being hung on his bloodied cross, in wearing the crown of thorns, in taking up the entirety of God's wrath upon himself so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus Christ in his broken body showed his steadfast love for you. And in his glorious resurrection, in putting to death sin, he showed his power over all things. The same power that he promises to you and raising you to life and carrying you all the way to eternal life with him if you would trust him. This is the gift that God will never strip away, that he in his love sent his only son to live, die, and rise for sinners like you and me. God has proved himself to you. You can trust him and love him. The question of how can God be good if he ordains suffering? How can God be just if he allows evil and injustice? All of it comes to rest when you look upon Christ. God, who allows suffering, only does so because he is willing to subject himself to the same suffering. The God who allows suffering faces suffering with you. That's how a sovereign God can glorify himself through your suffering, by suffering with you and ensuring your eternal life. Y'all may be young, but I know that suffering is not foreign to you. The relentless shame of looking on someone of the opposite sex or the same sex with lust. The endless exhaustion and stress and anxiety from trying and trying and trying to get good grades in school with no avail. The sting of rejection and loneliness when you go another day without having friends to call your own. The incessant accusations of the voices in your head telling you that you're not good enough, that you're ugly, that no one loves you. The draw of drugs and alcohol and pleasures and indulgences of life that you know aren't good for you, that you know are killing you, but just feel so good. I know that you face these things on a daily basis. I know that you look at Job's response to his own suffering, the worst suffering that could ever come upon a human being, and you ask, how is that possible? How could someone who goes through so much not curse and be angry with God? And I pray and ask you to stop and consider Job's example in order to take the first step of faith. When you suffer, 
whatever it may be. You can mourn and worship. You can praise God. Because you can be sure that no matter what, God is real. He is infinitely perfect in every way. He is perfectly sovereign. And he has committed himself to you in Christ. If you are not a Christian, or if you don't know Christ, realize that this is not a hope that you have. And I don't intend to be manipulative or scare you into trusting Christ. But the reality that is that if Christ is not your Lord and Savior, then your suffering has no hope. It has no meaning, and that should be terrifying for any of us. But I am very happy to say truthfully that God invites you to repent of your sin, to trust in Christ for righteousness, and submit your life to him. If you are not in Christ today, Christ calls you to repent and be saved. And if if you come to him, he will not cast you out. The great end of the gospel, that Christ lived, died, and rose again, is that the sovereign God of the universe that we saw in this passage is yours. And you are his. And you can have the hope that he commits himself to protecting and caring for you and filling your heart with faith and keeping you all the way until you enjoy eternal life with him. And having this God over you allows you to respond rightly in suffering. It allows you to love God for no reason and trust and worship him even when you don't understand the suffering that you're going through. For all of us, may we love God for no reason other than simply that God is God and he is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Job's example and for your perfect sovereignty over this whole narrative. We humble ourselves before you because it is so easy to take our eyes off of you and our suffering and to put them on ourselves. And it is so easy for us to put ourselves above you, sovereign God, and judge you. And so we need your help with passages like these to put us in our rightful place, but also to have hope in the midst of the hurt that we experience. Father, I pray that as we continue to learn from the book of Job, as we continue to see your sovereign authority, as we continue to dwell on Job's initial faithful response to you to fall on his faith and face and worship, I pray that you would help us to see our lives and our world 
the way that you see it. To see and trust your purposes even when we don't understand. Pray that you would help us to love you because you are God and not because you give us good things. Pray that our faith would be rooted in the realities of your perfections and not first in the things that that you give us to bless us. Father, in our time of small groups, allow us honest conversations about the hard things that happen in our lives, the things that we're confused about, the things that we don't understand, the things that hurt. And as we walk alongside one another through hurt and suffering, may we help each other to bring this perspective upon our lives, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, that you are working to glorify yourself, that there is purpose in our suffering, that we can love you for no reason. And I pray that you would be honored in the way that we grow together as we allow the sovereignty of God to reshape the way that we see life and see faithfulness to you in the midst of our sufferings. pray that you would do all these things through the power of Jesus Christ given to us in the Holy Spirit. May we be changed and shaped in Christ-likeness all to the end of the glory of I would praise of your glorious grace. I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.